Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Sam Gregg. Eric Cohen is out this week. Thanks for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate to the show notes for this episode to find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to fine podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Churchwell, who's the Director of Programs at the Acton Institute, as well as Dan Huger, who's a Librarian and Research Associate at Acton as well. So I hope you all had a good Memorial Day weekend. But we're going to talk about a subject which is um, less about remembering good things and much more focusing upon uh, some of the difficulties that we experience any church experiences, any religion experiences, when politics enters the congregation. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because there was a very interesting article in The Atlantic, published on May 10th, 2020, by Tim Alberta. And it's really a discussion of politics and the evangelical church in the United States today. And to give you a sense of precisely what they're talking about, the title is How Politics Poisoned the Evangelical Church. Well, of course, religion and politics have gone hand in hand uh, from the very moment that uh, Jesus Christ said to, see, uh, said to the, um, some of his interlocutors, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. But Christians and people of other faiths have always had questions about how they should bring their faith into the public square and how the public square and things that are going on in politics and everyday life, how that should affect what churches, mosques, synagogues talk about on a daily level. But we're going to be focusing very much upon American evangelicals this morning. So, first of all, I'd like to turn to uh, you, Dan. This article really suggests that something has changed with American evangelicalism. And at least from this article, it seems to be suggesting that this is in part, part of the, let's call it the Trump phenomenon, the emergence of Donald Trump into politics in 2015, becoming president, elected president at the end of 2016. And this threw many things up in the air. I mean, American evangelicals have been involved in politics for some time now. But it's interesting, I think, that this article talks very much about how the emergence of Donald Trump has affected, and at least it argues, the differing views about uh, President Trump's agenda but also the election uh, of 2016 and the election of 2020 has introduced the types of divisions that at least the article argues weren't so apparent in the evangelical world in America before 2016. So I'm wondering, first of all, Dan, Dan Churchwell, what do you think of this article? And do you think it presents an uh, accurate picture of what's going on in American evangelicalism? And if not, what do you think is going on vis-a-vis politics and evangelicals? Yeah, it's a fascinating article. You know, it uh, it takes about an hour to read, and it's uh, uh, 
a really interesting analysis and just the narrative. I think he does a nice job contrasting the two different pastors, you know, from, from the Detroit area. But I, I'm not sure as I read it, if I, if I find it as amazing or, or as, as, as interesting as some people do in, in one regard is that I, I think a lot of this issue comes from the problem with what, what do we even mean by evangelical? And, and so, you know, that, that classic defining the term when we're talking about it, um, whether you have David Bebbington's, you know, uh, famous quadrilateral that, you know, an evangelical is somebody who's interested in a biblicism, a, a cross-centered relationship with Jesus, a conversionism, that there has to be a, a very clear conversion to Christ uh, a very um, a moment in time that you can point to, and and then activism that that was David Bemington's four quadrant, and and there's debate about whether this, but but for years this is what has stood as trying to help define evangelicalism. Well, that's a those four pieces are a giant tent, and in that giant tent you have very disparate theological understanding. And I think at, at the root here, even though it's about politics, the article itself, it, it stems from some of the messiness or the fragmentation by the definition, what, what does evangelical even mean? Be, because there's so many different denominations under that tent with different, uh, especially es- um, the big theological term would be eschatology, right? The end times. A lot of these pastors and some of their parishioners don't even understand or realize that, that there, a lot of them are influenced by a certain kind of eschatology that makes them think that Christians are supposed to be doing some sort of action to usher in the kingdom or not. And, and, and Does that mean political activism, Dan Churchill? Is that what you're, you're speaking about there? Or are you talking more about the type of thing that Christians are expected to do as a consequence of choosing Christ. Yes, yes. So uh, evangelism and those kinds of things are, are wrapped up in that. But no, social activism was, uh, again, according to David Bemington, and, and again, this is kind of generally accepted as a good framing to start talking about what isn't evangelical because it's so hard to define. Um, but yes, yeah, social activism has always been a part. Dan Huger and I were talking earlier. I mean, there is an evangelist named Billy Sunday who is a famous um, Southern Baptist. Actually, he was a baseball star an American uh, uh, baseball star who got saved and left the life of, uh, you know, being a a famous baseball player and became an evangelist around the turn of the uh, 20th century. And in in part, his preaching and engagement with politics uh, helped bring in the 18th Amendment because Hmm. they felt so strongly against drink, you know, and and alcohol. And and so prohibition, he he fought for this idea of prohibition. And so, I mean, we could go on and on and on about how – I mean, it's it's not new that evangelicals have engaged in political, you know, discussions. But I think at this moment that – trying to decipher what did Trump do? What did Trumpism or never Trumpism? I mean, now you have people like David French and people taking sides. And what Alberta does in his piece, I think is really great, is showing now the guns, instead of the church, you know, pointed outside, like fighting the world, they're actually fighting each other. Like the the, the piece, the article, he's, he's talking about the the evangelical churches are now fighting each other more than merely fighting, uh, you know, quote unquote, the world. So, in, in that context, uh, th- 
I, I, one of the quotations in the article, I think it's from Russell Moore, who was once, to, once was quite prominent with the Southern Baptist Convention. Yep. He makes a point in there. He says, uh, I don't know any church that's not affected by this. Yeah. So do you think that that's an accurate depiction of what's happening in American evangelicalism at the moment? Or is it something that's specific to particular denominations? Because you said, and I think this is very important, that what does the word evangelical even mean? Is it a sort of broad brace thing or is it is it much more about something more doctrinal? So I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm posing the question. So when he says this is something that's affecting the evangelical world as a whole, there's really no church that has escaped this, is that accurate, or do you think that it's just particular parts of the evangelical world that this is affecting? Well, I definitely think the more conservative you get, some of this is, is the the concentration of it might be uh, thicker. But but even in I mean, you you see it in in more progressive evangelical circles as well. Just obviously from the other uh, different sides, and, and so no, I, I really do think I think it's very accurate. Um, I was a, a professor in one of the largest Bible colleges for uh, six years, and so I have a lot of students who have been all over the country who I still engage with, whether it's through social media or text or friendships, and and they're all over the map. But I, I don't think there's a single one, like he stated in the article, uh, I, I think it's very accurate that there are churches um, that they're really – I don't think you could point to a church that COVID slash Trump – those two issues haven't been so ultimately politically engaged that that has affected every. I, I think it's a very fair statement. Well, let me turn to you, Dan Huger. I mean, I know that you have followed closely the history of uh, different Christian churches in the United States. So I'm wondering, how would you situate this article in the context of the history of evangelicals and politics? Since the 1970s, because I could be completely wrong here, but my sense, and I'm speaking here as a Roman Catholic who's not familiar with the history of this, my sense was always that evangelicals, again, with all the caveats that Dan, Dan, Dan Churchill mentioned, started engaging in politics really in the 1970s with movements like moral majority, etc. I could be wrong there, but that's always been my sense. So Dan Huger, I'm wondering if you could situate some of the issues that this article talks about in the context of this longer history of evangelical engagement with the political world in the United States. I I, I think that there's there's definitely a turn, and Dan is right to draw us back earlier to figures like Billy Sunday. Folks in the late 19th, early 20th century, we could go back also to the Civil War and sort of activism, abolitionist activism within churches. We could go back to the very foundation of the Republic where you have many ministers actively preaching to their congregations in favor of what was then sedition during the American Revolution. But there is something that happens after the Scopes trial where a lot of these folks feel sort of publicly chastened. Could you say um, something about that trial? Because m- many of our listeners may not have heard of it. So Tennessee at the time um, 
Tennessee had been teaching uh, from a standard sort of scientific textbook that argued both for evolution and eugenics. Um, and the legislature of Tennessee took exception to this, outlawed the teaching of evolution in schools. There was a teacher who continued to teach this, and thus there, there was a trial. Um, this is a very famous trial, a very early uh, uh, in which Williams Jennings Bryant uh, argued on behalf of the state of Tennessee. He had been the sort of four-time Democratic Party presidential candidate in the late 1800s through the early 1900s, had been secretary of state in the Wilson administration. Um, and Clarence Darrow was the famous trial lawyer who argued on the other hand. Um, and uh, the... Uh, the case caused a sort of public uproar. H.L. Mencken, the famous journalist, came to town and basically ridiculed the people of Tennessee for being a bunch of rubes. Uh, there was a very famous play, Inherit the Wind, based on this. Um, and this sort of chastened that political activism. Or maybe another way to think about it is – some of these early cases in the 20th century, let's say prohibition, let's say advocacy for America's entry into World War I, were Christian political advocacy, but they happened among both what we call the traditional mainline churches and what we would now sort of anachronistically call back the evangelical churches. Um, the Scopes trial kind of, kind of signals the break with that. Um, there was a historical project of sort of trying to reclaim the sort of social witness of evangelicals among Harold Ockinga, Billy Graham, uh, these sort of folks. They founded Fuller University. Yeah, this, this is 1950 ish, yep. you know, that, that 50s. Christianity Today magazine those, comes yeah. out of this. And so there's a slow rise in political engagement. Where this first shows up electorally, sort of counterintuitively, is with the Carter campaign for the Democratic nomination for president in 1976. Many evangelicals uh, politically mobilized for the first time in a long time as a sort of self-conscious group in favor of President Carter's candidacy because President Carter was famously an evangelical who was also famously uh, forthright about his faith convictions. Um, the Carter administration had many faults. Um, many folks ended up being unsatisfied with it um, for, a, a, for a whole constellation of reasons. And some of these folks began to mobilize as explicitly advocates uh, or, or uh, explicitly on the American right. And this is, you know, Jerry Falwell, who comes out of a fundamentalist tradition, uh, organizes the moral majority. And there are these flurry of groups throughout the 80s and 90s that are focused very much on sort of family values. Um, Culture warriors, that, yeah. that term, yeah. Also, I assume, I assume issues like surrounding life issues, for example, were yep. part of these. Okay. So life issues are part of this. Education issues are part of this. Prayer in schools, the reintroduction of prayer in schools was an early sort of push. Um, and that is that coalition um, stayed broadly intact. There were some folks more enthusiastic, some folks less enthusiastic um, through the Bush 
uh, presidency, another sort of famously evangelical uh, president, although United Methodist by actual membership, but sort of identified as an evangelical Christian, um, that coalition really starts to fracture in with the Trump administration. Uh, well, Obama too. I, I would and, say Obama created some of the foundational cracks yeah. that then blew apart. Well, what's and, interesting about this is that the article does talk about Barack Obama as yep. well as obviously President Trump. And as you say, Dan, the sort of catalyst that this provided within the evangelical church for some of these things to become more present. Now, I'm, re- I'm also reading here that in 2016, 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. I don't know what the percentage was for 2020. My suspicion is it was either the same or higher. Either of you, I'm sure, will correct me if I'm wrong about that. But, you know, and this is really a, a, a question for Dan Churchwell. Evangelical Christians has for a long time gone, gone together in the minds of many Americans, not all, but many Americans, with conservative politics. It's, there's been this long-standing assumption for a while, at least say that since the Reagan administration, that evangelical means that you are most likely to be uh, conservative in your politics, conservative in your economics, uh, probably a reliable voter for the Republican Party. So my question to you, Dan, is this article and some of the tensions that it highlights in uh, the evangelical community in the United States, do you see some of these tensions breaking up some of those easy associations that many people, especially outsiders like myself, have made about American evangelicals and conservative politics writ large? Well, one thing I think it has done is it's glued – I mean, it, it, it's in the in the American psyche that that religious people can sway or have, have direct effect. Um, I guess I guess the 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 theater, the theater of politics can have such a great effect. I mean, whether we're talking about Billy Sunday or whether we're talking about, I mean, evangelicals have always been known to harness modern technologies, and so whether it's radio. You know, when when you move from the big tent evangelism, you know, of the of the awakenings of the the tw- early twentieth century, to Billy Graham on the radio, and and in fact that that nineteen late nineteen forties post World War II early fifties when you have all those new evangelical institutions, in fact they rebranded as neo evangelicalism. That that's the that, that so there's a. Uh, the last 70 years has been kind of the rise of neo-evangelicalism, as uh, Dan Huger mentioned, some of those institutions being created like Christianity Today and, and a lot of um, uh, schools of higher ed. So that I, I think the, the pivot point for us or, or at least the, the concentration of the Trump issues with conservative evangelical voters is the total – embracing of the social media platform and the influence of some of the articles and people that they platformed that allowed some of these theories and ideas on political theological engagement to thrive. It really thrived because of the social media movement. I, that's why I said I was a little – I love the article in, in its narrative, but there have always been these – movements in broader evangelicalism, always, um, 
like all the way back to the founding, like Dan Huger said. So there, evangelicalism is is a, is kind of very uh, fluid in how we describe it. Um, in fact, a lot of churches are now, they call themselves non-denominational. So you go to an evangelical church, that means non-denom. So there's no denomination. So it's, it's, it's led by one pastor, one group of leaders. There's no hierarchy. So it's not like a Presbyterian or, or for sure a Catholic, you know, with, with you have the layers of response. So they're assigned to themselves. So the pastor or pastors can act autonomously. And and so you in in evangelicalism, broader evangelicalism, there there's not a lot of oversight, and so they, they can a pastor can get up like the article says and have a political moment from the pulpit, and 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 do it every Sunday. And they said that's what the people loved. You know, Tim Alberta said that the more they polled the congregation, the congregation loved the culture minute or whatever. I forget exactly what he called the diatribe. it. Diatribe. Yeah, the diatribe. <laughs> They, 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 his crowd loved that. And it, the one church grew from 100 to now 1,500 in two years. So you're suggesting that there's a type of incentive factor that's working here? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And the, 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 when you bring in those cultural issues, people want but, – but tying it, how does that tie into a specific ecclesiology? Like why are – what – what is church for? What is it? And what is it, you know, how I think those are really popular or not popularly talked about. Um, the, the theological foundations of what's going on aren't understood well, especially in evangelical churches. Let's talk a little bit about the social media side of things, because that's another thing that struck me about the article, just how many times social media was mentioned again and again and again with the, the man who goes into the um, the building and, and does a little video and suddenly he's got 18 million people uh, watching his video and therefore attracting lots of people to his particular group and his particular way of being church, etc. So Dan Huger, uh, as Dan Churchill said, evangelicals have been masters of taking new forms of technology and using them in different ways to spread their message, to build up their congregations, to, to well, not just to evangelize, obviously, but also as a way of establishing a place in the public square. What's different, however, Dan Huger, this is for you, what's different here about social media in particular? Is there something about social media in particular that seems to be driving these deep divisions and even a certain degree of vitriol within evangelical America when it comes to politics today. I think I think I think that's absolutely true, and I think I think Dan is very right in pointing us towards the technological role. Evangelicalism has always had a very strong what we call a parachurch, mm-hmm. where you have these ministries independent of congregations, oftentimes always independent of denominations. Um, These are the sort of things like Christianity Today magazine, uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, a lot of these evangelical institutions founded in the 40s and the 50s were on this parachurch model. Um, What social media has done is it's democratized that technology where it no longer needs an institutional infrastructure is it can just be a pastor in a congregation 
Um, and you'll note what's uh, the way the article is structured, which gives a sort of uh, sort of two sides of this sort of war on evangelicalism is on the one hand, you have this pastor of Floodgate Church, this church that has grown dramatically because they did not shut down at all during uh, COVID lockdowns. And because of, you know, some of the political commentary delivered, fiery political commentary delivered by the pastor. Um, And the response is interesting because uh, the other pastor in town, Pastor Brown, who is sort of queasy about these developments and uneasy with them, uh, his response is to start a podcast discussing these some sort of issues in the church, um, which is which is very striking to me. And so now, you know, these these movements can gain steam based merely on the sort of charismatic weight of an individual leveraged through social media. And then people are increasingly responding to these through social media. Um, all of this occurs outside of the sort of but not only the denominational context, but also the parachurch context that have historically acted as sort of guardrails of evangelicalism. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yes, that's, a, that's actually a very interesting point, I think, because there are no guardrails, right, with social media in this context. And as I think your point, Dan Churchill, about non the rise of these evangelical non-denominational churches means there's no hierarchy right right there's no elders right. or anything like that that can say hey pastor pastor dan knock off the politics or uh, pastor jill um, we don't want you talking about these subjects because it strikes us that this is not consistent with the message of the gospel etc well et and, and and the democratization of technology like like dan huger was saying is is apparent because at its core, at its definition, evangelicalism is a slippery term. So it's very fragmented in, in how you understand it. Well, when you get technology, particularly social media embedded, which is hyper-fragmented, you have all of these affinity groups. So all of the fragments can now have their own platform. So even some of the ones that might have been more fringe evangelical, if you have some, you know, quote unquote, influencer or somebody writing a lot of material, whether or not it's it's, it's fallacious or not, um, you, you can create your own brand and evangelicalism at its nature is brilliant at that. And so you have these smaller and smaller affinity groups create, you know, so you can really find a church that just, I mean, just really zeroes in on all of your wants um, and especially around the, the, the fracturing of, of Trump and COVID, the, the combo there, I, I think really augmented the ability of social media to be like the water that's in that stress crack in the rock, in the foundation, and just to blow it apart. And and I can't stress enough that this article wasn't about the church versus the world. It was about the evangelical church versus the evangelical church. And so that fracturing is becoming more apparent. Right. And I I was going to add to that, that one of the other things that struck me about the article was the way in which people would just get up and leave when they were dissatisfied with what they were hearing, right? So there's the the lady who describes herself as a moderate Democrat who simply gets tired of hearing what her pastor at a particular church is is hearing. And then I think the expression is she goes shopping. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She goes shopping. And uh, that I thought was very interesting because I think that, as you say, social media and the way that that has 
empowered individuals, but also generated this fragmentation, creates a circumstance in which that type of shopping, let's call it church shopping, denomination shopping, congregation shopping, simply becomes a lot easier. Well, of course, social media isn't the only way in which people of faith can engage in thinking about political, economic, cultural, and social issues. There's also think tanks like the Acton Institute, which have been doing this now for over 30 years. And that's why I'm very glad that Jan Churchill is with us today, because I'd like to turn our discussion to another forum, another forum beyond social media, another forum that engages differences of ecclesiology, uh, doctrine, dogma, but also differences about philosophy, politics, and especially, of course, economic questions. And that's what the Acton Institute does in many respects. But we have our, our premier event coming up very, very soon, Acton University in the middle of June. Unfortunately, it's closed in the sense that it's fully booked. We can't accept any more applications for this. But I'm very glad Dan Churchill is here today because I'd like to sort of talk with him a little bit more for our listeners about what Acton University is, why it's important, and its role in the overall work of the Institute as it goes forward. So, Dan, uh, you're the person who's really the the master behind the scenes for everything to do with (laughs) Acton University. I was wondering if you could tell us what you think are some of the most salient things that would interest some of our listeners about Acton University and the type of gathering that it is. Absolutely. What uh, what is so fascinating to me about Acton, you know, we're an ecumenical think tank who deals with the intersection of, you know, religion and economics, connecting good intentions to sound economics, however you want to say it. Um, and and our, we, we do great conferencing all over the country, internationally, you know, and and so we do really, um, and and that's what I hated about COVID. You know, we we did we pivoted to a lot of online, and we did amazing things. But when you're able to sit around a room and have conversation with some some of the world's best thinkers on politics, economics, the intersection of faith, work, and economics, it really is a different thing. So I mean, I'm just delighted that we're back in person this year. Um, we ho- host our you know main conference right here in Grand Rapids. We're going to have about 750 to 800 people. Uh, join us. And Acton University has been a part of Acton Institute for almost 20 years now, I think. And and so it's steadily grown. We had about 1,100 people right before COVID shut um, in in, in 2019. And so having 800 back, I I think we're just absolutely delighted. This year, it's going to be about 50% international. And so there, there, there really isn't another conference and, and and the University of Pennsylvania right consistently ranks us as the top or the one of the top um, free market think tank conferences on on these interdisciplinary topics because of uh, we're having over sixty faculty members presenting hundred and twenty two lectures throughout the four days and again we're ecumenical so this, there there are Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox we have um, some great Muslim scholars coming and Jewish scholars to talk about religion faith. And economics, and no, you know, you can have lunch one day with a group from Peru, and dinner. You're sitting around with a group uh, from Chad, um, and then the next day you're in session with somebody from Eastern Europe, and so you you have the opportunity to rub shoulders with and 
diverse group of people thinking through what does it mean to live morally, ethically, religiously in a world that's embedded with economic and political decision-making. And so I, I really can't talk more highly enough. And I know you said, uh, I think you said I'm the man behind the curtain, but um, I mean, what a great team here. You know, Dan Huger, he puts on great conferences through research and everybody steps up. But I, I am really excited to be back in person uh, June 20th. And, and just one caveat, uh, we, we are having an online component this year. So if, if you're, un, you're unable to make it because of uh, in-person, but if you go to university.acton.org, you could still sign up for the online portion and get, just get a taste, a little taste of what it's like, and maybe join us next year in, in person. So Dan Huger, uh, Dan Churchill's told us a lot about Acton University in a very short period of time, which I thought was excellent. But Dan Huger, I'd like to ask you this question. It's a question about the pedagogy, how the curriculum works. Um, I mean, you've been watching this, you've been involved in shaping the curriculum at uh, Acton University. How would you describe it as working and the sort of ends that it tries to serve? So there are there are sort of two ways that it functions. So there are, as as Dan was saying, you know, the the sixty speakers. But for fo- for folks who are new, there is a sort of core curriculum where we go through and we talk about sort of the vision of the human person, where we talk about basic economics, where we talk about natural law, these sorts of things. These get everybody sort of up to speed with the Acton synthesis and what we have tried to accomplish as an institute in undergirding sort of all of all of this with a broad um, foundation that then you can go out and explore the various topics. We have speakers on you know, an immensely wide range. Um, so you get, you know, it's sort of this, uh, you know, you see this in some sort of like liberal arts universities of like a very strong core curriculum that then enables, because this is not a model where you have someone get up and lecture at you the whole time. What this is, is a model where, You get up, you hear people, uh, great scholars with excellent perspectives, sometimes perspectives that disagree, Mm -hmm. but they help you to bring you into an ongoing conversation that you have first with the speakers, then with your fellow participants, and then hopefully then out into the world, into your own churches, communities. Um, This is an ongoing dialogue about a free and virtuous society. This is not, Father Robert used to always, always say, you know, there is no Acton Institute catechism <laughs> where you have, you know. <laughs> you sure about that? There, 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 <laughs> there is a place in the world for rote responses to questions. Those are in churches when those things have been decided by ecclesial bodies. But this is a very diverse group of people that come together out of common concern and shared core principles. Um, and that's and that's what we want to facilitate through this. And this is really the event in the year where that all gets brought together along the widest range of topics, but also with the strongest emphasis on those foundations for those folks coming into it new. And, and what is great is those lectures are 45 minutes each, but then we 
embed a 30-minute Q&A in every single lecture. And so you have direct access to these speakers and thinkers on these topics. So the people that sit in on the lectures can spend it's, – it's not like a TED Talk like you mentioned where you just get talked at and then, and then they bail. You have direct interaction and it builds relationships and that, that – they carry out and then follow through into, into hallway conversations and conversations at lunch and dinner. And, and it really is a, a rich time of conversation around these topics. Yes, I, I, I've literally been followed into the bathroom by <laughs> students wanting to talk about some obscure point of natural law. They came up in a discussion following the Q&A of a particular lecture. I, I kid you not, that has literally happened to me. Uh, so Dan, Dan Churchill, um, one of the things about Acton University, of course, is that we bring in uh, several plenary speakers, and these are held in the evening. It's a, it's a point where everyone is in the same room at the same time. But we bring in plenary speakers, people who are coming from different disciplines, different types of backgrounds, but who are clearly major players in their particular area. So I'd like to conclude this session by you just telling us a little bit more about who some of the plenary speakers are and some of the topics they're going to be talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we have some really interesting people coming on uh, Monday night um, Dr. L. Gregory Jones, who's the new president of Belmont University and kind of an expert on entrepreneurial leadership. Um, he'll be doing the, the Monday night plenary session. And again, these are going to be live streamed. And so people can join the online component as well. Um, and he, he adds some really interesting, he was at Duke for many years and has really done a lot of research and, and we're looking forward to have him here on talking about generally uh, entrepreneurial leadership. Uh, Tuesday night is Amity Schles and Amity Schles, the economic historian, you know, many, uh, uh, great books. Uh, she's going to be discussing some of her new work and from a historical perspective, um, she, she does really interesting, you know, her book, The Forgotten Man. Right. and um, A Great really, Society, yeah, the book of hers. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, she, she's really an expert on kind of that era. And so she's going to update it and apply it uh, roughly 100 years later. You know, what, what does she see now uh, going on that is applicable or, or even similar to what was going on um, during the, hi- the history component that she is most versed in? <laughs> Uh, Wednesday, we have Mike Cosper. Um, speaking of evangelicalism and fracturing, Mike Cosper is a producer and host of, um, of podcasts at Christianity Today. And last year, the main one they hosted was called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, based, oh, on, a, wow. based on a church in Seattle um, and a, a pastor, a, a lead pastor. And it talks about technology and influence. I mean, it it was one of the leading podcasts of the year um, of all podcasts. So Mike Cosper will be talking a little bit about um, some of his experiences there and what evangelicalism, uh, what's going on there. And then finally, uh, Thursday, Father Sirico and others are leading a panel um, on one of our great new documentaries. Um, and it's, it's called The Hong Konger. And the Hong Konger is about the, the fate of Jimmy Lai, the billionaire from Hong Kong, um, who has been imprisoned due to his stance on uh, a lot of the political issues going on and, and 
Acton Institute has published a, a great documentary now, uh, created a great documentary, and we'll have a panel of people from that documentary speaking and engaging uh, the final night with that. And we'll also have a special showing of the Hong Konger at Acton University. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're delighted to have that diverse group for our plenary sessions. So, Dan Hugo, to close up with you, what's your best anecdote from Acton University? Oh, my best anecdote involves um, an, a professor that shall not be named. <laughs> and I was – this is to give you an idea of that sort of immediacy. Um, I was uh, assisting with our bookshop. We always have a wonderful uh, bookshop going on at the same time as Acton University and was working with some interns and staffing that. So we came into one of these evening plenary sessions late. And as we arrive, we take our seats at like an empty table in the back of the room. And when dinner begins and uh, late, a professor, one of our speakers comes and he goes, he goes, oh, you know, I, I was told I could sit here. And then we're like, oh, you know, welcome, you know, and this is, you know, an, a very august older man and he just starts quietly eating. Um, the wine service had already been by the table. And so then he takes his knife and bangs his glass and says, hey, can you turn this into wine for me? <laughs> at which point I flag down some of the gracious staff at the DeVos place and I, and, I get, and I get this August professor his wine and he returns to his meal and a student, a participant at Acton University comes up and he comes up to him and he says, you know, you know August professor, I've read all your books. You've been, you've been such an influence on me. I'm so glad to meet you. And, you know, they engage pleasantries and then he goes, August professor – what is the biggest difference between students today and students when you began teaching? And he puts down his knife and his fork and he turns to the participant and he says, there is no difference. They're all just slaves to the zeitgeist of the age. <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, I do what you gentlemen are doing now and I excuse myself because I cannot do it at the table. Um, and that is, that is my most iconic memory <laughs> of Acton University. Well, I'm, I'm sure between the three of us, we could come up with another two hours of anecdotes from, anecdotes from Acton University, but we're going to have to call it a wrap there today. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews only, please, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan Churchwell. Thanks to Dan Huger. For the Acton Institute and the absent Eric Cohn, I'm Sam Gregg. We'll see you next week.